It is a great honor that we've each been given to assemble this Lord's Day morning when so many other things could have captured our attention, so many other pursuits in life seem to be that which could have occupied our thinking, and yet, as a congregation of the people of God, the ecclesia, as is so often described in the pages of the New Testament, we are privileged, in fact, so very honored to come together as we are this morning. As certainly I continue to be so thankful for those men who fill in, not only capably, but superbly, in my absence, as you allow me to go to be a part of those gospel meetings in various places. Last Lord's Day being with a congregation in White County by the name of the Jericho Church of Christ. But certainly thankful today to be back with you, with our Christian family here. And in fact, as we do that and rejoice and celebrate over the opportunity to fellowship with each other, how much more great is it to be able to fellowship with God? Today, as you come to a lesson entitled, Words from the Cross, the topic of forgiveness. I'd invite you to think with me for the next few moments this morning about not only forgiveness as our Lord proclaimed it, but as it is should occupy a very vital and central role in your life and in mine. These introductory thoughts, I suppose, would be appropriate, directing our thinking toward how this particular lesson at least will be developed. 1,983 and a half years ago, arguably the most monumental event in the history of the world. After its creation, we reach a, a, a moment, an event, in which the Son of God was crucified. It changed everything. It changed the way in which people would relate to God. It changed, in fact, the way in which the judgment will play out. It changed the absolute eternity, didn't it? As you think about the way we'll then express and be exposed to the nature of eternity, you realize so greatly with me what an event it was to think about the Lord's crucifixion. When He was put to death, thankfully, four New Testament books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, detailed various ways in which that crucifixion is presented. And by putting them together, we can develop a rather complete picture of what our Savior endured on that occasion. You'll notice, in addition to the events themselves, it might well be noted that arguably the greatest sermon ever preached was not one continuous dialogue, but rather was a piecemeal presentation by our Savior while hanging on the cross. Seven things the Lord uttered. I'd invite you to begin to consider them with me as we look at what Jesus said while He was on the cross. As these will be a part of a series, we'll begin this Lord's Day morning and we'll continue for several Sundays. Time and again, we'll ask, what did the Lord say? How did He say it? And what are the implications? As we begin today, it certainly would be fair to at least recollect the circumstances in which our Lord made these statements. And so, let's briefly review the scene of the cross itself. Jesus, of course, was the eternal God in the flesh, wasn't He? Time and again, isn't it true, those New Testament accounts remind us He, remember His name, Emmanuel, meaning God with us, Matthew 1, verses 21 to 23. As Jesus thus could well be described by the text which I would ask you to consider, He expressly is described in these words in Philippians 2, "...who being in the form of God..." thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, but made, in fact, in the likeness of a servant. And being found in fashion as a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. God in the flesh. 
We recognize then the perfection that was Him. We recognize the greatness as is described in those passages. He never committed a single sin. Never once did He violate either in action, in word, or in thought the nature of what was the will of God for that age and time. Never once. The perfection is astounding. And yet all the while you notice that perfection leads us to see that not only did He strive to Himself live there, He encouraged others to recognize the grandeur of God and to live in harmony with it. And so He taught, He preached, He performed miracles, He touched the lives of untold individuals. Even they recognized that He taught with a great authority, Matthew 7, 29, even they recognized that He was one who could go about doing good, Acts 10.38. And all the characteristics of that thought, He Himself admitted that He was the Messiah. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a noteworthy neighbor. He literally was the anointed one of God. He said that Himself in John 4.26. He said that Himself in Matthew 14.61 and following. In all of those characteristics, we seem to find one that you would have thought would have been lifted so highly. The world should have embraced Him, should have encouraged Him, and yet the Jewish leaders rejected Him. So great was their hatred, so profound was their distaste for Him that their sole desire was that He would be put to death. But not just any death. They weren't just satisfied with him being taken outside the city in stone. That wasn't good enough. They wanted him humiliated. They wanted to ensure that everyone knew that his teaching, which opposed theirs, led him to be the one that was a blasphemer, and he was the one that needed to be punished so greatly. And so it was their sole cry was for him to be crucified. Any other death for them would not satisfy. On three occasions, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. This Roman ruler, this Roman governor, by his own questioning, by his own interrogation of Jesus, I can find nothing in this man worthy of death. And yet, we find that when he offered them the opportunity to release Barabbas and therefore and other characteristics, they wanted Barabbas released. Pilate asked on one occasion, What then should I do with Jesus? Their cry with exclamation in the Greek language was crucify Him. Crucify Him. It's almost as if they would not be satisfied with anything less. Thus, in their plea and their desire for Him to be crucified, we find putting the various aspects and features together, a somewhat brief timeline might quickly be observed. You remember on the evening hour, Jesus came together with His apostles to celebrate the Passover. It was an occasion that was very deep, profound, and special. That was, a, by the way, the time that, of course, He instituted the Lord's Supper as a lasting memorial of those who would love and appreciate His kingdom. That began shortly after Sunday, unlikely, but shortly after 6 p.m., as you and I would call it. As the Lord enjoyed that festal time with those, again, it was a somber occasion. They seemingly recognized something was different. As often as that was a happy occasion, they detected a member on this occasion. Jesus handed the sop to Judas and identified his betrayer. Things appeared to be a bit unique. You remember that Judas quickly went out and proceeded to make the arrangements for the betrayal. 
You'll also remember, though, that as those events came to a close, they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. As they made that interesting journey, Jesus spoke of a number of things to His apostles that were closely following, but one thing He so dramatically pointed out to them is He said, This night all of you shall be offended because of Me. That was when Peter said, Though the others depart, I won't. Even if it means my life, Lord, I'll never leave you. Jesus, you may remember, told Peter this night before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. Jesus thus foretold that all of them were going to leave him. He would be left alone, and though that seemed unbelievable to them, they did make it to that Garden of Gethsemane, and there Jesus proceeded to pray not once, but a total of three times, Lord, my Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And thus the Lord, recognizing the agony coming in just a few short hours, the anguish that was shortly to be his own, he prayed for deliverance from that moment, but all the while, nonetheless, succumbing entirely to the will of his heavenly Father. It was the case, as you can see on that slide, we've now arrived at basically near the midnight hour. You'll notice that after that, the band came with Judas and they arrested Jesus. They came, they bound him like a common criminal, led him first off to Annas, who is the father-in-law of the present high priest, who questioned him in the wee hours of the morning. After that degree of questioning, he was led away to Caiaphas, the present high priest, and thus the group of officials of the Jewish religion were gathered and they heard things that were said and they specifically sought false witnesses against him, Mark tells us, but they weren't able to find any. The witnesses disagreed with each other. They said things contradictory and thus you know they were false. Isn't it amazing in light of all of that? Finally, they came up with a charge. Remembering what he had said, destroy this body and I'll raise it up in three days hence, they charged this man with blasphemy, claiming to be the Son of God. The charge stuck. The high priest and those around him said, on the charge of blasphemy, let's in fact decry the fact that he should be put to death. And so it was. However, they were not able to put people to death. That power had been stripped from them and thus they had to take him to a Roman official and thus to Pilate he was led. Before Pilate they accused him of different things and they had formally accused him. Before Pilate he listened with care and this man Jesus, they claimed he needed to be put to death. You'll notice that timeline brings us now. We are in the rather the strong daylight hours as this group met. Pilate ultimately removing himself from the matter took a basin of water, washed his hands of the matter, and turned him over to the Jews. But before he did so, he proceeded to scourge him. Maybe these photos, or at least these pictures, will remind us in a rather rapid fashion of some of the scenes of the evening. His questioning before the high priest and the other officials, the characteristics of what they determined and decided. You'll notice that scourging mentioned in John 19 verse 1, was an almost inhumane beating. The victim was tied so that he was unable really to defend himself in any way. And then these Roman officials, rather trained I should say, would flail away at the victim 
lash after lash, and the victim was unable to do anything about it. It's quite often the case in the annals of history that victims, in fact, died in the course of the scourging. These were merciless beatings. Jesus, our Savior, underwent that, but He didn't die in the course of it. Lost a great deal of blood, no doubt. His body a mangled mess when it was over, but He endured it. As He did all of that, it brings us to recognize that the timeline continues. For they, you see, still had blood on their hands, and they still had desire in their heart for a scourging still wasn't enough. They wanted Him crucified. And thus, they proceeded to hand Him a cross, urge Him to move it, Unable to do so, it would seem, they compelled Simon, a Cyrenian, to assist him, and off they trudged, slow and unsteady step, after slow and unsteady step, to the hill of Golgotha. As they went, we can only remember that there were those standing along the roadway along which the Lord was walking, and they were reviling Him in many cases. They were, in fact, laughing at him and insulting him and blaspheming even the fact of who he was and what he had stood for. The very one who, for three and a half years or so, had taught and preached and proclaimed, Look at you now. Look at you now. As the moments passed on by, they came to the place at which they wanted to be, stretched out his arms over that wooden cross and proceeded to nail them into it the convulsions that the body would experience as those nerves were severed, as those portions in the very tender part of the hand and wrist area were ripped asunder, and yet not once, not even twice, but three times those nails were pounded into His hands and feet. As all of that happened, you again imagined that this was the Son of God. And when it was all finished, here He was, lifted up and the cross was dropped into a hole that had been prepared. And Jesus was now presented, the crucified one. Such agony, such terrible, terrible agony. You can imagine the pain the body would experience. Virtually every part of it had been, of course, very, very seriously inhibited crown of thorns on his head, his body front and back had been beaten with those Roman lashes, the nails had been driven into his hands and feet, virtually no part of the body was without pain. The very act of breathing was even difficult. As all of that comes before us, I would invite you to again think with me about what he said while he was in that condition. In that condition, what did he have to say? It's a monumental set of words, really. We'll begin today by looking at those seven statements, magnificent statements He made while on the cross. The first one, in order, that we find is, of course, echoed in a reading found in Luke 23. In verse number 34 of that chapter, we find the following grand statement. Jesus said, Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. The depth and the degree of what's expressed in a statement like that one, it seems to me, is well worth a few moments of reflection. We've just tried to highlight briefly the kind of state in which he was when he made the statement, but yet in that state, the first thing he said 
remembering about the 9 a.m. hour he was nailed to the cross. That's when the crucifixion ultimately began, if you please. But then, in the hours that continued, the first thing the Scriptures give us as record of what he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here are some thoughts I would invite you to consider. And please consider how you or I might have most naturally reacted. Wouldn't it have been almost natural to be filled with rage, to be filled with vengeance, to be filled with resent, and to bring an end and perhaps lead to the death? Remember, He was God. He could have killed all of them there in the blink of an eye. He could have ended it in a moment, but He didn't. Earlier, He Himself had admitted, hadn't He, in Matthew 26, verse 53, on that occasion when, remember, they came to arrest him, Peter pulled out a sword and cut off the right ear of Malchus, one of the high priest's servants. You may remember that Jesus said, Peter, put up thy sword. For those that live by the sword shall die by the sword. But in the course of that moment, he also said, Thinkest thou not that I can now not pray to my Father, and he would send me twelve legions of angels to deliver me from this moment? Jesus even readily stated, did he not, that this could have been ended at any time he so chose. A legion of Roman soldiers consisted of roughly 6,000. And Jesus thus mentioned 12 legions. Isn't it easy to see? 72,000 angels at very least God would have dispatched in a moment. Ended all of this, brought the Lord back to heaven, and that would have been the end of this crucifixion scene. But Jesus, you see, didn't end it that way. Rather, we notice the Lord continued with tremendous perseverance. He continued on with dramatic love for all, including the ones that drove the nails into Him. Almost unbelievable, isn't it? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. May I ask you to think also about the mercy and the compassion no doubt expressed in those words. And in particular, certainly it's fair to say, as you come near the bottom of that slide with me, thoughts like these. Jesus did say in that verse, they know not what they do. They may have thought they were putting to death this troublemaker. They may have thought they were putting to death some Jewish fanatic. They may have thought they were eliminating an individual who was only a pest to society, when in fact, he was God in the flesh. When in fact, He was the anointed Messiah. He was the Christ. He was the one whose blood could and would save untold numbers in future generations. They may not have known it. Many of them no doubt didn't. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. As often as you and I might think about ourselves being in that condition, I think I can easily say I wouldn't have had the sturdiness of mind to react anywhere like he did. In rage, I would have wanted those men dead. In unpleasantness for what they did to me, I'd want them to pay an equal price. I suppose that's a tendency of human character, isn't it? But our Lord said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. May I ask? Inasmuch as Jesus knew the thoughts in their hearts and He knew the feelings of their mind, what does that say maybe about you and about me today? Are there times when you and I react in such an unchristian fashion? 
you're driving along an interstate and someone uses a signal light, turns into the lane in front of you in a perfectly safe way, but then proceeds to drive a little more slowly than you would prefer and you proceed to react in anger, very much upset. As often as I've driven along that roadway, I've witnessed it in many who are driving in cars beside me. I see hand gestures and I see other behaviors that are extraordinarily unkind, all because someone who did nothing out of the laws of the land just happened to inconvenience the person a little more than he or she might wish. You see how often in rage we can act, and yet look at what he did for me and you. Look at what he endured. Or maybe at the office. Pieces of information are shared, things are said and done, and maybe it doesn't reflect as well as one might wish upon oneself. And so in anger, you take revenge on the one that said it. When all the while, maybe it was said in ignorance. The person just did not know the truth and the matter of the fact. Look at what the Lord endured for me and you. Should it not be the case, you and I ought to strive to uphold the highest banner of Christian character, Christian behavior, Christian mentality, even with regard to what we think? The Lord subjected Himself to so much, and all the while He controlled Himself. How often does the Word of God encourage you and me to be people of control? Not letting ourselves fly off the handle act in such a way that in fact in the temper of the moment we later regret what we've done or said. I suppose it's entirely fair in light of all of that to state that as we find some verses that read like this, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. The urgency and the admonition to be kind and tender-hearted, to strive to highlight the need and the application of forgiveness, we find that admonished upon us in Ephesians 4.32. We also see that Jesus Himself brought this home, did He not, for all of us in ways that still are so difficult. In Matthew 5.44, He said, "'Love your enemies.'" We may well find that that seems an appropriate verse for Old Testament. It may even seem like something needful for the first century. But the Lord has given that for your consideration and mine today. That man that doesn't seem to like me very much. In fact, he even has purposefully striven to make things more difficult for me by going behind my back, by in fact striving to help others disagree with me and agree with Him. He's really had it out for me. Jesus said, you love Him. You pray for those that despitefully use you. I would be quick to say that is not easy. If you've ever had someone truly who was your enemy, who was really out to get you, you know how hard it can be to pray for them, but the Lord said we must do it. He said that we must strive to have in our heart a heart none unlike that which the Lord exhibited at Calvary. Those that did that to Him, He prayed for their forgiveness. And He prayed that they might recognize what ultimately He would offer them. Love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. And then He quickly observed even God gives the sunshine and the rain both to those that love Him and to those that don't. 
as you and I recognize how difficult those passages can be, may I say that it is a strong part of what's involved in your forgiveness and mine, isn't it? In Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, wasn't it Jesus there who directly said that if you and I do not forgive those that trespass against us, then God will not forgive us. That puts it as plainly as it could possibly be stated, doesn't it? Namely, God's forgiveness of you and me hinges on our willingness, our reality of forgiving those that trespass against us. So question, are you and I as quick to forgive others? When they come and make admission, I'm sorry I did that to you. I'm sorry that I said it. I wish now I never had. I beg you to forgive me. How quick are you and I to do it? Do we hold on to the grudge and do we hang it over their head like I will just make sure that you don't forget what you did now? And so it is that we try to make sure there's a degree of evenness about the whole matter. Jesus said, unless we forgive them, God will not forgive us. Doesn't that make forgiveness in a critical part, an additional condition, if you please, to make sure that our life is as it should be? Forgiveness. I wonder then what is involved in forgiveness. As you'll see at the bottom of that slide, forgiveness. Doesn't that involve the putting into place of a relationship that once existed but now is severed? A state of affairs that is wished to be the case on the part of two parties, each wanting to enjoy a degree of unity, a degree of communion, a degree of camaraderie, if you will, that now is severed due to the actions of one or the other. In the world, we often think of forgiveness like that, but consider it in the nature of what the Bible teaches. God is the one that's perfect. He hasn't moved. You and I, by our sin, are the ones that have. We know what's involved then when we come and confess our sins and repent of them and have ourselves cleansed in the blood of Christ. We know we have made a statement that we want that relationship to be put in place. We now notice that when someone, due to their actions, has severed a relationship with us, we, upon their request, are commanded to forgive them. That command, perhaps highlighted in that statement in Luke 17, verse 3, Jesus there said, If he repent, forgive him. We understand the sweetness then that is the case when that relationship is put in place. Forgiveness being offered, being applied. The greatness perhaps leads us to return to this statement Jesus made, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Notice the Lord said in ignorance they were doing something and they didn't understand the full consequences of it. And the Lord prayed that they would be forgiven. Were they forgiven on that occasion? They certainly hadn't asked for it. They were excited about the thought, no doubt, of putting Jesus to death. Those religious leaders were Maybe that thought leads us through the next consideration and in fact the final one of our lesson this morning. What about that forgiveness for which they asked or for which Jesus asked? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The Lord on that occasion, even in the duress of the moment, prayed unto God for the forgiveness of those who were guilty of this very monstrous act. In the course of that forgiveness, though might we forget, that forgiveness was not extended to them on that occasion. It wasn't. 
We know that because of what happened later in the biblical text. In fact, consider this with me. The Lord was shedding His blood even in the very course of what was happening when He said this. And later, over the hours as they transpired, blood would continue to be shed while He was on that cross. But in the course of shedding that blood, it brings us to the events mentioned in the sermon of Peter in Acts the second chapter. You remember how it went when Peter directly said, By wicked hands you have crucified and slain the Son of God. He put directly on their head the fact of the crucifixion. Those Peter preached to 52 days later. Notice though what was, what, what was said. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? You'll notice at that point, what could they have said? If the Lord had forgiven them fully, completely, and directly 52 days earlier, they to Peter could have said, Jesus forgave us of this over seven weeks ago. Peter, you're behind the times. Notice they did not say that. They recognized the fact they had not been forgiven of that sin yet. And you'll notice they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter then said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, for the remission of sin. The very thing for which the Lord had prayed was now a possibility. His blood had been shed, the church had been purchased, and everything was ready for their complete and full forgiveness if they would comply with the terms. It wasn't, you see, unconditional forgiveness. It was conditional forgiveness. And there were terms to which they had to comply. And those terms included repentance and baptism. Sadly, only about 3,000 that day submitted to the terms. But thanks be unto God about those 3,000 did in verse 41. And it says, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Notice the Lord prayed for their forgiveness. It would not be until a bit over seven weeks before the full opportunity was granted to them. But according to the prayer of Jesus, they were given the opportunity to be forgiven of the heinous crime of crucifying Jesus. Isn't it interesting to see the reality of that forgiveness? You and I today, though we may not literally with our own physical hands have driven the nails into His hands... May I say, every time we reject His offer of salvation, we in a sense are guilty of the same. Just like those that day that were unhappy with what He preached, we too, in a sense, crucify Him. I don't want any part of this. And in a sense, we're guilty of the same. We read later in Hebrews 10.26 about those who trod underfoot the Son of God, trample over Him if you please. There are those today still doing it. Every time we reject the gospel call of invitation. Every time we fail to attend the assemblies when we can. Every time we are guilty of these other sins, we trample underfoot the Son of God. We do the very things that He died that we might be forgiven of. And so as we close this lesson, might we ask some questions not unlike these. Highlighting some of the things we've seen and learned today. The Lord on the cross spoke the word of forgiveness. It was the first of the seven. The first words out of His mouth were not about agony for Himself, not about the features of what He wished for His own grandeur and glory in heaven. His first words were forgiveness for those that had done this. And we're doing it. In parallel, forgiveness for all of those throughout the ages that would be guilty 
of sin. Doesn't that include all of us? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And surely enough, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. I'd like to close the lesson then by asking all of us to think about forgiveness and how much we need it. And how much we should this extend it to those about us who again ask us to forgive them. May you and I always with a heart quick to be tender, quick to forgive when asked, be ready to recognize that that's the way Jesus was. I hope that each of us as Christians can display the behavior, the conduct, indicative of what the Lord would have us to. It can be challenging, it can be demanding, but oh, isn't it worth it? Today, if in your analysis of your life you find that things are amiss, publicly you brought shame and disgrace to the very name of Christ because of what you've said or done, maybe even the things you've thought, why not try, in fact strive at once to make it right with the Lord? Jeff has chosen this hymn of encouragement. We're going to stand as an opportune time in a moment and in convenience sing that. And if during the singing of that song you'd like to come forward, to ask for prayers of strength, prayers of forgiveness of things done and known publicly, it would be a sweet, sweet time of forgiveness for you because God's promised to forgive if you'll again comply with His terms. In closing this lesson, may we never forget, forgiveness from God is not unconditional. There are conditions we must meet, and may we strive to help others know what those are and submit to them in faith as well. This very day, if you find yourself in need of public response, maybe you've never become a Christian. To this point, you have ignored the waters of baptism. In fact, you've been rebellious against them. Maybe you've heard others say that you don't need to be baptized. Don't you believe it for a minute? Don't allow yourself to be swept beneath this rug of false teaching. But rather, may you appreciate that those terms of forgiveness, according to Acts twenty-two sixteen, include baptism. If we could help you with that today, just like Brother Robert Apple was on Friday, what a grand occasion to see, to appreciate a person who's now a new creature in Christ. If you'd like to be one too, Jesus paved the way, paid the price, and we'd be happy to help you. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?